V1. Pull up. Pull up. Pull up. Terrain. Terrain. Pull up. Terrain. Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's always good to see you guys. And uh, I think we have a very interesting accident. And one of those accidents where, you know what, we're actually going to give the NTSB plaudits. So, you know, we always, every week, we seem to find some fault with the NTSB. But I'm going to say that this actually was a very good investigation on the part of the NTSB. But they also had some very good information available uh, for them to, uh, to utilize in the investigative process. Not only did they have great witness statements, but they had some very good video um, that they could rely on that really took them through the entire accident sequence. So uh, in getting into it, this was an accident that occurred down in Angel Fire, New Mexico. I spent a lot of time down there when I was with the NTSB working general aviation accidents because um, it is a high altitude airport. And of course, when it's hot down there, you have a high density altitude. Uh, this accident involved a Piper uh, PA24-180 Comanche, which I owned a 260 Comanche for almost 30 years. I'm very familiar with the Comanche, love the airplane. Um, it's fast, it's slick, um, it will perform. But when you have a 180 horsepower engine, and you have a density altitude of around 9,200 feet, now, you know, probably you're gonna have a problem and an issue with, uh, with takeoff performance. And this was a takeoff accident. This was a gentleman who owned the airplane. He was from Kansas. He and his wife had been out visiting. And according to the NTSB, they were able to find out that this particular pilot had never been to Angel Fire before. So now you have a pilot who's kind of basically a novice into this particular airport operating possibly even at these high altitudes and high density altitudes. He had friends out there who helped him on this particular day um, refuel the airplane, but the weather was not the best. I mean, there was some overcast, but nothing real exciting. The biggest concern, of course, was the wind, and it was a strong gusting wind that in relation to the runway, unfortunately, was almost a 90 degree crosswind. That in and of itself um, starts to lend pause to, is this aircraft gonna be able to perform and perform as necessary? And so when you start looking at the whole sequence of events, and we will put the link uh, to Catherine's report and to the NTSB docket, because there are some great videos in there and some good witness statements as well 
um, that the board was able to use that really pieced together this very tragic accident. And as we, the three of us have talked off air about this particular accident, yes, the NTSB talked about the fact that the, the probable cause was the pilot didn't do very good pre-flight planning and, um, and cited him for performance and, and a variety of other things that we'll talk about. But um, they did a comprehensive investigation based on the evidence, but there were some situations that yes, we wouldn't typically expect to see in an NTSB report, but they are questions for our hangar flying session, if you will, where it lends uh, credence to a variety of different things that we talk about on this show all the time with regard to pre-flight planning and having the 1A, the 1B, the 1C plan, if you will, because John's always harping on it at the end of the show. And I think this is a perfect accident to reinforce some of those things and talk about some of the issues that you know, we, they, they weren't addressed in the NTSB report. Um, that, that doesn't make the report any less effective, but it's something for our viewers and, and listeners to at least think about um, in their own flying. And I know that both of you guys have, you know, uh, your respective opinions based on reading uh, the report and, of course, watching these very compelling videos uh, of this accident take place. There was some good security video that the NTSB was able to use and get some good information from. So I'll start with you, Todd. What do you uh, what do you think? Well, there's a, a lot to pick from, like you said. And one of the things that jumped out at me was that there was very little time for the pilot to make a decision. The, the report said you took off about halfway down the runway, which given the impact point, gave him just over a nautical mile between liftoff and impact. And at his speed, it'll be roughly a minute worth of thinking. Part of which was the first part was routine, apparently lifted off, retracted the gear. And then things that were, again, we don't have any witness statements from the pilot because he didn't survive. But he was uh, setting up to land on a road, apparently, and lowered the landing gear. And he had maybe, in my opinion, 45 seconds between realizing something was wrong to him uh, contacting the ground. And in that time, there's a lot going on. Although it's a relatively flat area and a lot of fairly empty space on either side of the road, the road itself was a sort of a complex affair. You had telephone wires going down one side, you had a set of telephone wires going directly across the road where apparently he was trying to get over it. And if he had made it past that, about maybe 850 feet beyond, there's some high tension lines over the road. And on either side of the road, you had light poles. So regardless, if this person's trying to land on the road with a lot of other things going on, there are obstacles there. So this was not an ideal situation with respect to choosing a place to land in that short period of time that he had to make a decision. Okay, Todd, you know, you brought up a, a picture of what you just described with regard to um, uh, an overview of the, uh, of the road that basically resides in, adjacent to the, uh, to the airport and the runway. This pilot took off, and when you look at some of the, the factors before he even took off, you know, John was talking uh, offline with us about the fact that it's decision-making. And this accident should have never happened because this pilot should have never left the ground. John, what are your feelings? I mean, based on what we've been able to determine from the NTSB's report, 
you got a brand new pilot or a novice pilot to flying in this airport, flying in this kind of density altitude, apparently, and the wind sure didn't cooperate with him with regard to, uh, to the best performance out of his aircraft. Well, obviously, he didn't. He didn't do very much in the pre-planning department. Even discounting the weather, did he just think about what was going on? We talk all the time about having an option if something bad happens to you before you get in the air, right after takeoff. You know, when you're thinking about taking off from this airport, if you, all you had to do was look down the runway, you could see those power lines, see all of the, the, uh, the structure holding them up. It's crazy. I think that he got himself uh, like jumping into his truck, going to the supermarket or wherever. He just he's going to go flying. Right? So you got a crosswind component, you got a, a density altitude issue, and you've got obstacles, not just insignificant obstacles, but big ones. You're going to try to land on the road. That's like threading a needle between all those telephone poles and light poles. I mean, really, the, the, this thing was stacked against him from his own decision making. And I think he was trying, when he got in trouble, I think he was trying to save his airplane by landing on the road. Because we all know that out in the desert, it's not flat. It may look flat, but it's far from flat. And if he put it down into any one of those open fields, guaranteed he was probably going to lose his gear. And that means the prop and that, you know, he's going to have a lot of damage, if not uh, eliminate his airplane, because it wasn't really a new airplane. So the value was probably not uh, high enough with damage where you would lose your gear, that would, the, the insurance company would just take the airplane from you. And he owned it so long that it probably felt like it was his baby. You know, we going to keep this airplane forever and he's trying to save it and then it cost him cost him his life even if he missed the house uh, that they hit the building that they hit he was going to lose his airplane well and, when uh, we look at when crazy, we look at man, no some of the lousy decision making well when we look at some of the factors um of course you know we we look at why, what, what motivated him to even take off under those conditions, especially since he isn't uh, really experienced in conditions like that? Um, you've got a gusty wind that uh, ranges anywhere from 10 up to 25 knots, and it's more or less a direct crosswind. Now, I've handled pretty good crosswinds in my Comanche, not by choice. And, um, and so, again, you've got to start thinking, what motivated this guy to have to take off. They were going back home to Great Bend, Kansas, their, their home airport. Um, was there some self-induced pressure? We talk about this all the time. Why didn't he wait? Would the weather have gotten better an hour later, two hours later? Would those winds have subsided? Because if he had looked at the weather, he would have seen that there was uh, some weather moving through that may have gotten better on the backside. Or, you know what? In general aviation, you wait another day. That's just life. And in this particular instance, something motivated him. He has friends there, and apparently they helped him prepare the airplane before takeoff. Where were they? Why didn't they encourage him not to fly, uh, given those weather conditions and that kind of stuff? But uh, they sat there, they watched him take off, and it was described that right after takeoff, he did pull the gear up. Okay, great, that will increase performance. The problem is, is that the wind was coming from the right side, 
blowing right to left. Well, it blew him left, of course, right after he took off. So now he is flying basically downwind following that road. So now you're in an air mass. His airspeed wasn't very high. He, uh, he wasn't at a high altitude because the witnesses driving on the road said that he was extremely low. And when the security videos pick him up, you can see the airplane approaching and the gears hanging again. And the question is, why did he put the gear down? Now, as we both, uh, well, all of us have, have said that it's, it's apparent that he was trying to land on the road. The question is, why did he put the gear down so long? Because when you're or, uh, so early, because when you're watching the video, it's like, man, you got all that drag hanging out of there. If you're trying to get the best performance out of the airplane, especially as you're approaching obstructions, power lines, buildings, things like that, you aren't going to get the best performance out of the airplane to even milk it up 50 feet or 100 feet to clear those things with the gear hanging. If anything, you keep the gear up and use the flaps to, to pop you up a little higher. Um, but again, it's one thing to know the airplane. It's another thing to understand the airplane and understand flying. And when you look at these videos, it, it, is, it is truly obvious that at the very end, um, before the airplane made a very sharp banking right turn and then collided with a building, it's obvious that the pilot was trying to pull up to pull over the top of a power or telephone line and as he popped it up, he was already at a ragged margin right near the stall. And most likely he got into the stall because the airplane broke right. And now it was uncontrolled. And he and his wife were truly passengers when it collided with the building. And everything else after that is aftermath. So, And, and if I can take uh, the audience who was watching this on video, can I take them through this picture? I put a lot of notations on this because... Once I looked at it, both from the overhead and from the ground level cameras, it was a lot of complex stuff going on. Uh, you see two red ovals. One was the initial impact against trees in a building, and then shortly thereafter, the main wreckage. Now, south of that, you see a blue line. There were some high-tension power lines there. And north of that, you see a yellow line crossing the road. That was a telephone line, much shorter than the high power line, but it was directly crossing the road. So the NTSB stated that he was trying to miss power lines. I suspect he was trying to miss this particular short stretch of telephone line. It's about 800, 900 feet prior to impact. The high tension line was about 800, 900 feet beyond the impact. So in other words, there are two sets of power lines crossing this road. So if he's going to land, he'd have to do it in a fairly small strip. And it doesn't do it justice. You have not only the telephone poles, you have light poles. Not only that, you have traffic. But look around. There's a lot of relatively sparse territory on either side of the road. This is not a dense urban environment. If he wanted to land somewhere other than the road, he had options. And now, that, that speaks to aeronautical decision-making once the emergency is apparent to the pilot. Now, I can make an argument one way or the other about that kind of decision-making, what he could have done better. But you know, it might be better to split this into two kinds of decision-making. One before you get into the plane, and two, after you get into the plane. Yeah, and I think there's a lot to uh, chew on from before you get into the plane. Yeah, exactly. You know, what kind of pressure did he put on himself? What kind? Did his friends that were there put any pressure on him? You know, uh, where was he going? Did he have to go? Wait, there's a lot of, a lot of questions here that we don't get 
you know, and what was he doing for the last 24 hours or more before this flight? And, and all of this goes to pre-flight planning. And, you know, you definitely want to err on the conservative side if you've never operated in an environment like this. And when you look at the, uh, the aerial view of the airport, he took off on uh, runway um, uh, 17 to the south. Um, had he taken off northbound, given the fact that he basically had a direct crosswind, and if he was so hell-bent on, on leaving and taking off with, uh, you know, with the weather the way it was, then flying north or flying south really didn't matter from that particular standpoint, with the exception of the fact that when you look at the geography off the north end and off the south end, the north end, <laughs> the north end uh, may have been more favorable for taking off and having multiple options versus taking off, um, you know, and then drifting off the south end. So again, in this day and age with technology, um, I always want to familiarize your, my, myself. And 91.3 and 91.103 uh, require a pilot to familiarize themselves. Even if it's a VFR flight, if you read 91.103, it says, if you're going to fly VFR away from an airport, you have to familiarize yourself with everything about that flight. And in this case, you pull it up on an iPad or your phone, you look at the geography, because if you have an engine failure or for whatever reason, you have a problem and you have to put it down shortly after takeoff, where are the best options to put it down under these particular circumstances? And so that goes to the pre-flight planning. Now, the NTSB did put uh, the performance information in their report, and again, um, I've gotten into a multiple discussions about aircraft performance charts that are in AFMs and everything else. When you look at general aviation airplanes, those are guidance documents. Those are guidance numbers. Those are ballpark numbers, but they're very educated ballpark numbers. You can't hang your hat and if it says that you're going to have a ground roll of 758 feet, I guarantee <laughs> somebody goes out and measures that the takeoff roll that you just had in your airplane, it's not exactly 758 feet. Could be better, could be worse, you never know. But you want to err on the conservative side. And again, being, you know, uh, relatively inexperienced, definitely at, at this airport under these conditions, you want to be conservative. So those are good, those are good numbers to do the pre-flight planning. It's obvious that this pilot believed that with a 9,200 foot uh, density altitude, that that 180 horsepower engine with full gas and his wife and himself and probably luggage and that kind of stuff. So he's probably close to max gross. He was gonna be able to do what he needed to do. And it's evident that he wasn't even close to being able to do what he was gonna do. You know, one of the things with performance is really understanding what those performance numbers mean, because this is not a, a brand new airplane with the best performance. And what you said about, you know, understanding where you're flying before you fly there. Uh, again, I'm not promoting uh, this as an option, but I'm using, have been using ForeFlight. It's right here on my phone. I can pull up a plate from any airport anywhere. And if I'm at a desktop, it's like a leisurely bit of research to figure out where I'm flying to and what I should look out for. And one of the things I 
came across when looking at this accident was that there were specific guidance, suggestions on how to depart this airport. If you're going toward the south, there were specific obstacle avoidance procedures they had. If yep. you were going north, there were none. Given that the wind is essentially at right angles to the runway, my first inclination is to go north. Now, maybe it would have been slightly inconvenient to go north, but, you know, an obstacle that's as big as a mountain, I'd rather avoid. That's just <laughs> me. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. that's a pretty good reason. Yeah, so it's pretty clear that this, this, uh, this guy failed decision-making before he got in the airplane and during his pre-flight before he left. It just, he wasn't home. And, and again, you know, we go back to Advisory Circular 60-22 that we've talked about on previous shows, aeronautical decision-making and some of the characteristics of macho and, and things like that and the can-do attitude and everything else. Um, again, you got to park your ego. And some of this is ego-driven. I can make this happen. Or you have an overconfidence in, this, in the ability of the airplane besides yourself. And you have to be conservative in these kinds of instances. Um, even if you have experience, you just know that under these conditions, um, that engine is not producing 180 horsepower. You know under these conditions, that propeller is not producing um, the rated thrust. You know under these conditions, that wing is very inefficient. Um, it is not producing all the necessary lift. And you have the gear hanging. <laughs> you know that you're going to create a hell of a lot of drag that's going to present a performance problem. And, and again, it's all about preparation. And I think that uh, this accident is one of those accidents that reinforces pre-flight planning and prep even before you get into the airplane and with all the tools available to a pilot before they even get near the airplane. Phone, iPad, computer, it doesn't matter. There are enough websites, um, weather information for you to make a very informed decision and really determine your aircraft performance to see if this type of flight is going to be capable. And just because you have to wait an hour doesn't meet your schedule. So what? At least you're going to get home or you're going to be alive to talk about it. Um, unfortunately for these two folks, trying to make something happen they did make something happen and it was very unfortunate because it cost them their life. So uh, wrapping up this discussion, and again, we're gonna have uh, links to all of this and, and Todd's graphics on our website because it is one of those, when you watch the video, you can't help but feel that tension in your own body, trying to you know coach the pilot through what he should be doing when in fact, this is just history and you're watching history on this video. So Todd, I will leave you with our second to the last word. Well, this is a case where there's gonna be two of us with the second to the last word because there's something I wanna specifically ask you. One of the things that wasn't discussed in the NTSB report, but one thing I did think about is, this is an owner operator. This is his airplane. He apparently has had it for many years. And I'm sure he has a relationship of some sort with this airplane. I couldn't help but think, what may have impacted his decision-making into trying to land this airplane on the road as opposed to settling it down in a safer place? And we cannot ask, unfortunately, this pilot, but we can ask you, Greg, who has been a longtime aircraft owner, have you thought through this sort of thing 
before we ever get into an airplane? What am I going to do if I have to choose between walking away from a wrecked airplane or not walking away at all? Throughout uh, my ownership, um, <laughs> and I've been fortunate to have a Vemco insurance throughout all of my different aircraft, I never worried about damaging the airplane if I had an issue, because I knew that if something happened, um, one, I'm hopefully going to walk away from it, but two, I wasn't trying to save the airplane. Saving the airplane wasn't going to save my life. Saving my life may save the airplane, but I may sacrifice the airplane to save my life. I never, I never put that ahead of doing the right thing or taking the appropriate action. Now, um, we've talked in the past about, you know, <laughs> I only have myself to blame if I put myself in a bad situation. In this particular instance, this pilot put himself and his wife in a bad situation with some bad decision making. So be it. If he's able to make a corrective decision and take the appropriate corrective action and put the airplane down, you sacrifice the airplane, you walk away, and you talk to the insurance company. They total it, they send you a check, you go find a new airplane. Um, you can't have that emotional attachment. I see it all too often when pilots lose an engine right after takeoff and they try to make that proverbial 180 degree turn to come back to a piece of pavement rather than going straight ahead and, put, and putting the airplane down wherever. Sacrifice the airplane, do not sacrifice yourself. The airplane doesn't care. And that, that all comes with decision-making and free planning. What am I going to do if something bad happens as soon as I lift off? You need to know before it happens because time is short. Todd mentioned that a minute ago, maybe 40 seconds he had from the time he realized he wasn't going to climb until he impacted the, the uh, building. So that's not a lot of time. But it wasn't enough time for him to think about saving the airplane, putting the landing gear down, which just made his problems worse. Yep. And that and that's, again, another thing about really understanding flying and understanding the performance of your airplane and understanding yourself, what your capabilities are, pre-planning right here, running that mental scenario through your head so that you are prepared to take the appropriate timely corrective action and not jump the gun and not get excited and not do things that will make a situation worse. And by putting that landing gear down and then trying to pop over that telephone line made the situation worse. Would the situation have been different if he had left the landing gear up? Possibly because he would have had a little better performance because he wouldn't have had all that drag hanging out there. He may have had a little extra airspeed to do what he needed to do. We will never know that. But the fact well, I think is, he is certainly that, would have cleared the building because he barely clipped it. So if he kept the landing gear up, in my mind, he clipped, he would have went over that building even by, you know, another two feet, he would have missed the building and that could have changed the entire outcome. And the key there, John, is the fact that you want to be in control. And the only way to be in control where you have marginal aircraft performance is either through power or pushing, and pushing being lower than nose to keep the speed up. You need speed to fly, and there's only two ways to get it. And you know, again, okay, yeah, you're already low. I know it's counterintuitive to push the nose over, but if it's the difference between stalling at 150 feet above the ground 
where you then lose control and have no control of where that airplane's going and what it's going to hit versus pushing the nose down and being able to guide that airplane around obstacles or minimize the impact with an obstacle, I'd rather take the latter. Yeah, as I looked at the vehicle, I was trying to identify whether or not it was in a stalled condition. Uh, if it was so slow that he really had no flight control authority, but couldn't tell. He could, you couldn't see if the, uh, if the flight controls were moving uh, a lot as he was struggling to, to, to find that control. It just isn't visible enough in the video. I just looked, when I was looking at the video, the fact that the airplane rolled off on the right wing and hit that building, that wasn't, that wasn't intentional because the pilot, I don't believe, had control at that point. He got into the stall, the airplane rolled off to the right, and, you know, right wing down, and the airplane just went that direction. And unfortunately, that impact with the building was not guided. It was not intentional. Um, and again, that brings you right to the landing gear, right? Because we know we retracted it. So now was it 10 or 15 seconds before impact that he dropped that gear down, which now is going to slow him down and give him an aerodynamic stall right yep. at a period of time when he can't live with it stall. Yep. Uh, yeah. These are the kinds of things that, you know, from a pre-flight planning. And again, you want to run these scenarios through your head. You want to have that plan. You don't want to try to be doing things, pardon the pun, on the fly because you can't think fast enough, you can't evaluate fast enough, you can't assimilate fast enough, because if you only have 10, 15, 20 seconds to commit yourself to a decision and execute it, you can't be doing these things. You have to already understand what it is you're gonna do and then execute it. And as I always preach, execute with purpose. You have to have the purpose and then execute with purpose. So all of these things go to pre-flight planning and being very good in what you do before you do it. So with that, John, I will let you close us out. Well, this is a perfect example for, for pre-planning your flight. And as I often say, every show I say, I feel like a broken record myself. You know, before you leave, wherever you are to go flying, do a good session of pre-planning. After you get to the airport, do it again before you leave because things could change. In this case, he never was in the hotel, so he only had one opportunity and he was at the airport and he blew it. You know, everybody that's going to go flying, please review AC 60-22, aeronautical decision-making. Know it. Don't just read it. Know it. Know it. Have a, you know, if you don't have a checklist with your airplane, make one. You know, you can make one on, on notes and iPad or in, in Google. Right? Make one. So you go through it. We all forget things. So, you know, do what it takes to be a responsible pilot, responsible for your butt and other people's. Right? After you get to the airplane, after you've done all that and you get to the airplane, do a meaningful pre-flight. You know, the, the uh, narrative with this accident says that this guy was helping a lot of his friends get his airplane ready. That's, that's in itself is not very good because if you have people that you have to manage while they're working on their preparing your airplane, I mean, that doubles your workload. 
because now you got to come behind them and check and make sure that they've done it right. So make sure that a pre-flight is done thoroughly and properly. After you get into the airplane and, and uh, take off, put that head on a swivel. You know, we, before the show started, we had a, the three of us had a discussion over the mid-air in Denver, Colorado yesterday. Right? We have and student involving students. We just have too many of those. It's just a disgrace that, that what we're seeing today for, the, for some of these accidents. I recently just wrote an article that talks about the helicopter accidents. We talked about it on this show. You know, last year there was a record-breaking year for helicopter sales. And guess what we're seeing this year? A whole ton of student helicopter pilots crashing with and without their CFI on the, on the helicopter. Yeah. So, I mean, this is crazy. It's crazy. I mean, just, we have a pilot shortage. We don't want to be killing them before they even get there. You got to pay attention. So please, if you get in the air, put that head on a swivel, keep your wits about, you know what's going on around you, especially today where you can break, they can, uh, in certain areas, you don't have to have ADSB. So yep. please, please use your head and fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe. <laughs>